0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the draft board. David and Tyson here with you. Hope you're enjoying March Madness, and I'm sure we're all very thankful that it's back after COVID changed the world, mm-hmm. right as the last one was supposed to take place. But Tyson, how, how do you feel about March Madness this year?
1: It's crazy. It's good to catch a few games. I'm not super into March Madness basketball, but you know the the upsets are always enticing, and it's very interesting to see how players do and and which teams move on in the tournament, and it's definitely surprising this year.
0: And I found that it's been one of those things that sometimes can get even non-sports fans engaging with it. Case in point, every year I've, in a... I don't know exactly how big it is, but dozens of people are in this one March Madness bracket challenge run by my good friend's dad. And it's titled The People vs. Dan McIver. And it's been going on for, I think, at least 10 years, maybe significantly longer than that, that, I would have to ask him. And it's, it's also funny because Dan McIver is hardly some sort of consistent champ like he says he is it's just the running (laughs) joke every year where he's like hey guys have fun fighting for second place but as we all know march madness is is mad it's it's a great name for it and it is an absolute crapshoot when it comes to a lot of upsets and turns of events that can happen but before we start talking about that you know since we are going to be talking about madness (laughs) a a little bit today (laughs) I'd like to share with the people an incredible anecdote that I found on Instagram by chance a few weeks ago. Now, this dates back to August 5th, 2019, and it concerns former Ohio basketball player DJ Cooper, 30 years of age. And at that point in time, he was hit with a two-year suspension by FIBA after failing a drug test. Now, Tyson, why don't you take a guess at why he got popped? Usually when
1: a player fails a drug test, it's because of either performance-enhancing drugs like steroids or testosterone enhancers, or they were doing some recreational drug like heroin or
0: cocaine. And turns out, Tyson, the answer to the question is D, none of the above. What? Because DJ Cooper's drug test revealed that he was pregnant. Um, Pregnant. Um, uh, am I enunciating clearly? Yeah, that, that, that is the case, folks. His drug test... Show that he was pregnant and now since we're not buzzfeed we're not going to leave you we're not going to leave you there we're actually going <laughs> to tell you what happened so tyson the truth is dj cooper tried to use his pregnant girlfriend's urine to pass this drug test oh no and tested positive for for a substance called hcg I'm not going to try to pronounce the full name of that substance because I could be confident about it, but it's probably going to be very wrong. But yes, he tested positive for HCG, which is produced by women during pregnancy by the placenta. Uh And they found this out, and essentially they banned him for two years for trying to evade the drug test that way, and his ban runs through June 24th of this year. Wow. So note to self,
1: if you're going to try and sneak away through a drug test, Uh, Don't use your girlfriend's
0: urine, who is also pregnant, because they will find that out. (laughs) Right. I mean, at the very least, he could have. You know, I just I don't understand what was running through this man's mind. It's like, okay, I'm going to use. It's one thing to use your girlfriend's urine. It's one thing, but it's another thing to use your pregnant girlfriend's urine. Like that's just. I'm
1: sure the hormones and like imbalances were just way off and super weird. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's. I mean... Way, way to draw attention to yourself. He last played with a team in Monaco in 2017. <laughs> but anyways, now that we have that insanity out of the way, we're going to move on to our actual customary feel-good... Or actually, no. Before we do that, I'm just going to give uh, everyone a quick update on how we're doing in terms of streaming numbers-wise. We have superseded ESPN in total views just kidding <laughs> but no we're almost there we we're we've we're almost we've almost be first take no we haven't <laughs> but we are up to 34 listeners and a total of 15 followers on Spotify and our last episode change of pace so far has drawn 15 streams and 11 listeners and again honestly at this point, Double Digits is kind of our, our benchmark, so guys, whoever's, whoever, whoever's been out there listening, we really, really appreciate you as always. And of course, if you're following us but you haven't had a chance to get around to Episode 2 yet, that is totally fine.
1: Yeah, no, know. It's super great to uh, be able to do this, and uh, we love talking about sports, and we're happy that you're able to listen in on our conversation, and we hope that we keep
0: giving you good stuff to listen to. And speaking of good stuff now, Tyson, we're going to get into our feel-good story of the day. Why don't you introduce to the people to an amazing lady named Jean Dolores Schmidt?
1: Yes, otherwise known as Sister Jean, who is the chaplain for the uh, men's basketball uh, Loyola Ramblers. So Sister Jean, she is, like I said, the chaplain of the team, and uh, she
0: is 101 years old, David. Born in 1919. Whew. August? 21st 1919 she's almost lived through both world wars almost she's lived through the depression and definitely world war ii she played
1: basketball in high school she went and got a degree in uh, from from loyola as well uh she was very active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s so and she loves basketball and it's super great to see uh, these young men really come around sister jean and be able to really kind of feed off of that wisdom and that energy. And and they call her their their secret weapon. And uh, it's super great to see uh, Sister Jean uh, really lead by example and and show these guys uh, how how to live uh, right. And, you know, prior to defeating the number one seed, Illinois, in the NCAA tournament this year, she incorporated a scouting report into the team's pregame prayer, About some shooting percentages and rebounding. So, needless to say, Sister Jean, she's one of a kind. She kind of rose to prominence when Loyola went on that uh, run in 2017, I believe, where they made it to the Final Four. She became very kind of popular and well known, and she's been a figure of of Loyola basketball. Actually, I think that was 2018.
0: Oh, it was 2018. So they upset Miami, then Tennessee. And ultimately were defeated by Michigan, I believe it was 2018. 2018, but they made it to the Final Four. Yeah. And that was quite a run
1: for uh, for Loyola, and they're hoping for another deep run this year. And you know
0: what, Tyson? They are off to a very good start. Now, their first round game wasn't too special. They were an 8th seed going up against the ninth seeded Georgia Tech team, whom they defeated 71 And You go, okay, very, very close mm-hmm. in terms of seeding there, but... As you know, if you've watched any March Madness, seeding can be pretty whack Yeah. when it comes to this sort of thing. And we saw that in Loyola's case when they moved on to the next. They proceeded to dismantle number one ranked Illinois, like you said. 71-58. Wow.
1: Yeah. No, it's super interesting to see how these smaller schools do against bigger schools. Like, Illinois is in a Big Ten conference. They're definitely a powerhouse school, even though they're maybe not the traditional powerhouses like they are in football, but they definitely do better in basketball than they do in football. So, you know, those big conferences oftentimes have big schools that get a lot of notoriety. And, you know, like this year, Kentucky and Duke both didn't make the tournament for various reasons. So it's really interesting to see these smaller schools from smaller conferences get a chance. And they have very experienced players, and they're able to put up what they can do against the best players in the country on some of the bigger schools, and
0: and they're able to
1: prove that they can also play basketball.
0: And I mean, speaking of these upsets, how about we're just gonna we're just gonna run through a few of them for you folks. Oregon State, number twelve, taking out tennis the Tennessee Volunteers, the number five seed. 70 to 56 in the first round and then of course we have oral roberts now raise your hand if you picked oral roberts to make it anywhere out of the first round this is a podcast so you can't see us but our hands are both very solidly down (laughs) And, and not only that right they take number two seeded ohio state the buckeyes and they take them out 75 72 and it's one of those things where you you kind of learn to expect the unexpected with March Madness, and this was a great example of that. Now, if you were a salty Buckeyes fan, you're like, you know what? That was a fluke. There, there, somebody else is gonna stop them cold in the next round. Nope, they proceeded to take out number seven Florida in the second round, and they've made it to a you know a Sweet Sixteen. Not bad for a private evangelical university. For sure, yeah, like uh, Ohio State was.
1: Favored by many to be in the national championship game or even to win it, there were quite a few ESPN analysts that had had Ohio State winning the whole thing, and they were gone in round one. And I know that <laughs> for one uh, particular Vegas better, they had bet $100,000 for Ohio State to win it all.
0: Ugh. This is why you don't gamble, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> My goodness.
1: I mean, maybe the this person was thinking, oh, once Ohio State wins a couple of rounds, gets some momentum, and they beat up on some lower-ranked teams, they'll sell the bet back to the organization or to a third party or whatever and make a little bit of money off of this. But, yeah, no, nope, it's gone now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's the Lord saying you want to spend your money that way? <laughs> Go ahead, son, see what happens. It reminds me of this
1: one analogy on... Uh, on a tv show and it was um uh great now i can go and (laughs) place bets on college basketball and and it was the main character going up and said here's twenty thousand dollars and then the cashier is like would you like to place a bet sir and he's like nope just take it
0: <laughs> what show is this This family guy Ah, oh, family guy classic <laughs> yikes it sounds like something of beyond family guy no nope, just take it <laughs> just right yeah just take it and honestly anyone who bet on third seed west virginia are probably feeling the same way because they fell to 11th ranked or rather 11th seed at syracuse in the second round 75 72 mm-hmm. on sunday which leads us to very interesting sweet sixteen, wouldn't you say Tyson? You've got twelfth ranked Oregon State and eighth ranked Loyola, which at this point, you know, it's kind of that underdog matchup that at this point people probably realize they're maybe not underdogs anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of whose mojo is gonna keep going and I'm you know, certainly certainly I'm sure Loyola fans are hoping the sister gene can mm-hmm. can continue to help propel them on Fifteenth-ranked Oral Roberts is now dealing with number three Arkansas, and I mean those Razorbacks are—they might be sweating a little bit mm-hmm. after seeing what Oral Roberts did to their previous two opponents. But then, and then of course Syracuse is going to play second-seeded Houston this Saturday as well. Of course, Tyson—that does leave some of our more traditional favorites. Gonzaga is still alive, and they're taking on number five Creighton as a one-seed on sunday and you know brennan pastor brennan dick we've given you a shout out on this podcast before uh, we know your wife loves the bulldogs and i i, I know a couple people who love the bulldogs too so hopefully they can hopefully they can avoid falling victim mm-hmm. uh, in the sweet 16 personally i picked the michigan wolverines another one seed to win it all in my bracket although to be perfectly frank that was more based on the fact that I love Wolverines as a team name, and I feel sorry for what their football team did <laughs> this, you, this last season. You like the
1: name, not the team.
0: I, you know what, I also like the fact that with a stadium that can seat roughly 120,000, they have mm-hmm. the biggest stadium in the United States. The Big House is a place that I, honestly, for a few years, I've wanted to go watch some football there. That's mm. definitely a bucket list item, and... Thankfully, it is a bucket list item because COVID means I'm not going to get in the stadium with 119,000 anytime soon, but that's okay. You know, we've got Michigan taking on fourth-ranked Florida State. I I forget if I mentioned this before, but Syracuse is playing Houston. Second seed, I I think I did mention that before. 11th seeded UCLA is one we haven't talked about before, and they are facing number two Alabama in the Sweet 16 as well and this is my opportunity to say Roll Tide because I am a highly, highly bandwagon Alabama Crimson Tide fan, again because of the name and because I think Roll Tide is one of the coolest things that you could possibly say as a human being, not because I'm necessarily in love with the team.
1: I'm not a big fan of Bama. I don't like Nick Saban and the football team, but you can't deny that they're good this year and and their football program is definitely good. Big shout-out to the Pac-12 conference. A conference that is on the west coast usually doesn't get a lot of notoriety. UCLA, uh, Oregon State, Oregon, USC—they are all in the Sweet 16,
0: and they're all from the Pac-12. That's really good representation from that conference. <laughs> you know, I—I'm—I'm I'm sorry, jog my memories. Ohio, Ohio State, a Pac? No, that, that oh, those aren't Pac- sorry, Pac-12. Sorry, Oregon, Oregon State. Oregon State. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I don't know my college conferences as well as I maybe should at this point. But, you know, we're learning. It's just that I I heard – it's a different conference, I think. But I heard a meme. Again, because memes are great, right? Memes are but great. But if people don't know, supporters of the Ohio State Buckeyes say this very strange, obnoxious thing where they don't just – let you call them Ohio State University. They have to say, no, it is the Ohio State University. And I saw a meme that basically turned that on its head and went, the Ohio University. Because Ohio (laughs) made it further than Ohio State. Ooh.
1: Yeah, that's that's tough, because Ohio is definitely a much smaller school than Ohio State, and their athletic program is not nearly as developed as Ohio State's is, but it's really interesting and, and good to see that the smaller schools kind of get through and make
0: those upsets. So <laughs> Absolutely. And then, of course, rounding out our quick rundown of the Sweet 16 coming at you this weekend, number one, Baylor takes on number five, Villanova, and number six, USC takes on number seven, Oregon, in what on paper is another very evenly matched bout. So I'm sure all you college basketball fans out there are looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, it'll be exciting and it'll be uh, definitely not what we expect
0: because it never is. No. And you know what? Speaking of another upset, I would actually like to throw it to the women's side of the NCAA tournament that has gotten underway because now, having become an IUPUI Jaguar, I have to support the Horizon League. It's a Midwestern, mid major conference containing IUPUI, Cleveland, Wright State, Green Bay, Northern Kentucky, and a number of other schools like that. Now, Shout out to the IUPUI Lady Jags women's basketball team. They made it all the way to the Horizon League championship game for the second year in a row. Unfortunately, last year, they they won it all. Tyson, they won it all. They took out the Green Bay Phoenix 51-37 on home court. And the Green Bay Phoenix are essentially the New England Patriots of the women's Horizon League basketball scene based on how much they win. And then, unfortunately, COVID victimized my friends on the lady jags as well as many many other athletes by by canceling march madness and changing mm-hmm. changing life as we know it right now this year IEP, unfortunately you know what my team love them and you know what it was it was a tough loss but they they ended up falling to the Wright state raiders by a score of 53 to 41 well why am i bringing this up tyson am i doing it just to commiserate No, because, frankly, I'm not that petty, and Wright State (laughs) is a great team. So great, in fact, that as a 13 seed, they knocked off number four Arkansas, 66-62, yesterday. And so I'm giving them a shout-out for representing the Horizon League as well as they have been. Yeah, it's good to see those
1: smaller schools, again, get those representations in the women's side of things. You know, you got the big, big powerhouses, like uh, University of Connecticut is a major uh, powerhouse in the women's basketball side of things. Same thing with Stanford. Their coach has been there for a long, long time. Very successful career. Uh, it's really good to have those uh, smaller schools uh, get them get themselves into the tournament and make memories for life. And it was it was sad that it didn't happen last year because so many of those memories were taken away mm-hmm. because of COVID for so many players and so many teams. But uh, it's good to see that uh, we're back
0: this year. For sure. And speaking of back or, or coming back, how about Lonzo Paul's jump shot? It's, it's back, certainly, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, this guy... Well, before we get started on this, Tyson, I, I just want to address sort of the elephant in the room for a lot of casual basketball viewers who say that was an uncontested jump shot. Why didn't he make that? Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, the answer is multifaceted because obviously that hoop, you know, you go to any gym, hoops are not that big, and even the professionals mm-hmm. can have a tough time consistently making shots especially from three-point range because, you know, the margins of error can be smaller than you think, right? Especially if it's even a little bit contested or especially if it's properly contested. Having said that, there are also players who, let's say, are decidedly better at jump shooting (laughs) than others. And Lonzo Ball used to be an example of this in the negative.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Lonzo Ball was absolutely awful, at shooting the basketball for his rookie year. Just some stats in his in, from year-by-year stats-wise. Lonzo shot 35% from the field, 30.5% from three, and 45% on his free throws. Free throws under 50? Yes, under 50% on his My free throws. My goodness. There's nobody contesting him. It's just him in the hoop, and it's all concentration and form, and he only got 45%. Oh
0: my gosh, I don't know what's more impressive, the fact that he was that bad at this one particular skill or the fact that that same year he still managed to shoot 30% from three. Yeah, so, well, he he was kind of a
1: good three-point shooter in college. Like, he was really streaky for UCLA when he played there in college, when he went that one year in college. But he... Unfortunately, that streakiness of his shooting didn't translate to the NBA very well. So... The next year, in year two, he improved on his uh, percentages from the field. He shot 40% from the field. He actually shot 33% from three, which is... Uh, That's good. That's okay, you know. But again, he was 41% from free throws. 41% on free throws his second year.
0: I don't know what's worse, that or Aaron Baines' 42% on (laughs) layoffs.
1: I don't know. They're both pretty terrible. And then Lonzo Ball was uh, famously part of the package that
0: was for that Anthony Davis trade. Right, it was the the package that the Los Angeles Lakers sent to the Pelicans in order to get Davis a key part of their last championship run. And, of course, Lonzo is now in New Orleans. So now that
1: Lonzo Ball isn't playing with LeBron, he doesn't have these expectations, he can kind of be developed
0: a little bit more. A little bit further from LeBron and his father as well.
1: Exactly, and we saw some improvements. Again, he shot 40% from the field. He had 37.5% from three, and he got up to 56.6% on free
0: throws. So congratulations, it's barely a pass.
1: (laughs) It's barely a pass on free throws, but 37.5% on threes. That's pretty good. That's about, you know, kind of where you would expect him to be for a smaller guard. 40% from the field. You'd like to see that a little bit higher. And now this year, his last most recent year that we're in right now with the Pelicans... Lonzo Ball is shooting 42.5% from the field, 38.5% from three, and he's shooting 76.7% on free wow. throws. He has made considerable strides in his ability to shoot the ball over the course of four years. He's improved 7.5% from the field, 8% from three throws, and he's improved more than 30% on foul shots since year one. And those small percentages make huge impacts over the course of the year as more shots start to go in, he starts getting more confidence, and he starts playing more minutes. And because he can hit free throws somewhat consistently now, the coach can trust him out at the end of the game to make those free throws, maybe when he's getting fouled.
0: And as someone who has watched a few New Orleans Pelicans games in the last month or so, I can certainly say that he's passed the eye test in the ways that you described. I mean, he is a knockdown shooter, a bit made kind of, kind of been, mm-hmm. especially from three. He's had games where he has gotten very, very hot from beyond the arc and has been knocking him down, contested or not. He's pulling up for early long shots, early, like I said, early in the shot clock, and he is actually making it. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if, actually, this almost certainly has something to do with it because, you know, Ball is a guy that used to have this weird unorthodox jump shot in which by he was drifting to his left yeah. and, and launching, and it was very, very unusual. And now he his form is much more conventional, which almost certainly has something to do with his improvement as well as just the work he's put in. Yeah, the work that he's
1: put in to change his form to a more consistent form has definitely helped improve his shooting percentages, and that's something that definitely has been worked on and it's been a focus of his game for the last few years and it's why he's been able to get to this point where he's now a threat to score because his rookie year with the Los Angeles Lakers he wasn't a threat to score when he was on the basketball court you could basically have five guys guarding four players because you know he wasn't a threat to score he wasn't a threat to shoot he's not particularly athletic in his style that he's able to kind of Uh, blow by guys and get to the basket uh, particularly consistently so Lonzo Ball when having the ball in his hands for his rookie year he was essentially only a passer and that's really all he could do really well so now that he's added this other dimension to his game he's able to be a more effective point guard because people have to actually guard him at the three-point line because if they don't Lonzo Ball can make him pay
0: and certainly the pelicans are happy that he's making strides in this direction you know what they're a young team they're still under 500 right now 19 and 24 although they did take out the lebronless los angeles lakers 128-111 mm-hmm. earlier today and you know with a guy like zion williamson murdering rims at will <laughs> you know and with a guy like steven adams as a rock solid piece of granite mm-hmm. in, in the middle and Brandon Ingram a mid-range maestro you know they've got they've got talent on this team and hopefully in the next couple of years they can really put it together in the post Anthony Davis era mm-hmm. and make something of themselves now speaking of jump shooting and players that don't really do it so well <laughs> we're going to talk about Ben Simmons now if you don't follow the Philadelphia 76ers or you don't follow basketball Ben Simmons is He's a bizarre specimen. He's well. He's born in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, so he's kind of like he's an Australian-American player. The third Melbourne-born number one overall pick in the NBA draft, following Andrew Bogut and Kyrie Irving. I did not know Kyrie Irving was born uh, was born there. Really? Wow. Y- yeah. Uh, I. The internet's lying to me, <laughs> or you know what? It, it, it could be right. But anyways, I digress. Tyson, how many six foot ten, six foot eleven point guards exist in the NBA, or at all? Uh, currently, uh, one, Ben Simmons. Right, right. So, Ben Simmons has the body of a small forward, power forward, and he plays point guard. Which, if you know like two things about basketball, you look at sort of the roster sheet and you go, "Huh, it's a little bit unusual." Like, it's actually a lot unusual. And you know what you can say about the guy is he's three time NBA All Star. Last year, who's an All-NBA Defensive First Team, like Zion Williamson, he has kind of a penchant for murdering the rim, although not to the extent of Zion. He is a good passer, very, very athletic, can jump out of the building. But frankly, Tyson, the only thing that's more strange and anomalous than a six-foot-eleven point guard is a six-foot-eleven point guard who doesn't have a jump shot barely at all.
1: Yeah, this one is weird. So. Ben Simmons, he, like you said, he's six foot ten, so he's definitely got great size. He plays the point guard position, and he's been playing the point guard position his entire life, so he knows how to play it. But Ben Simmons, he's had five NBA seasons in his career, but he missed the first season due to an injury, so essentially four years of playing time. And in those four years, Ben Simmons has attempted for a total of. 32 career three-point shots.
0: Wait, sorry, in five seasons?
1: In five oh seasons. Oh my goodness. He's attempted 32 total shots from the three-point line. Or in
0: this era of basketball.
1: In this era of basketball. The more concerning part is that he's only made five. Say
0: that again.
1: He is five for 32 on
0: three-point shots. So he's made an average of one three a season. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Wow. He's, he's shooting,
1: like, he, we don't have much of a sample size here, but he's only shooting 15.6% on threes. That's,
0: you know what, that's, first of all... That's half of what Lonzo shot in his rookie year. I, I'm almost speechless, as as you folks can can tell right now. That is... Like, to make it into the NBA. Like, listen, all due respect to Ben Simmons, he's an athletic player, and he's got skills in other areas. But it's first of all, to make it into the NBA as a non-center, mm-hmm. and especially in this era of the NBA where centers are expected to shoot some threes, the three ball is more important there than ever, it's so important that the Houston Rockets tried to win an NBA championship last year, starting 6'5", PJ Tucker, et cetera. That's how important long-range shooting is these days, and the Golden State Warriors obviously made that fashionable. But to, you know, to have made five threes in your entire career, in your fifth year in the league, is frankly unacceptable. And I'm sure you would agree, especially given the fact that you take a guy like Lonzo Ball, and he's proof that if you work on your shot you can be a very poor shooter and get better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, And Ben Simmons,
1: the problem is, is that he's not even trying to get better at this point. You can see by his shooting percentage. Uh, for free throws, there's marginal improvement year to year. But from shooting percentage from long distance and long range, really there's essentially been no improvement. He, ben Simmons has shot 388 shots this season. And of those 388 shots, Ben Simmons has, uh, I think, oh, what was the number? He dunked or layups on 64% of those shots. Wow. 64% are either dunks or layups. That's so much of his usage. For another stat, Ben Simmons, he's only shot
0: 53 shots from further than 8 feet away. Wow. that's And that's not as far as you might think.
1: No. So, for reference, the foul line is around 15 feet away from the basket. So, go halfway between the foul line and the basket, and that's the distance that Ben Simmons is shooting some shots at. Mm. And of those 53 shots, he's only made 21. That's 39% from beyond 8 feet.
0: That, to me, is an absolutely bizarre fact. And... You know, like if there's gonna be players in the league that like that, you expect them to be like Shaquille O'Neal, right? Someone who just makes a living dominating the paint, old school as a center. But as we know, obviously Ben Simmons is a point guard, and and, and you know what? It's just it's just crazy to me that at this point teams don't just like every single time that ben simmons gets the ball on the wing or at the top of the key they don't just collapse off him like it's a video game and be like shoot it we dare you
1: yeah and he won't shoot it because he doesn't feel comfortable with the jump shot or he doesn't believe that he can make those shots he just for whatever reason doesn't even try and shoot he doesn't even attempt to make you know long distance shots or Stretch the court or even bring his defender closer towards him with maybe a pump fake so that way he can maybe have that advantage with a closer defender to go around him. He doesn't try and do that either. He's essentially only using his athleticism to get to the rim and either get a dunk or a layup or make a pass.
0: That's you know what, it's something that he, if he doesn't work on this in his game, I fear it might just become part of his legacy as an athlete. That, And, you know, maybe it is already. Time will tell. But, you know, frankly, it's it's maddening. It is.
1: And we're possibly coming to the time where this is just what Ben Simmons is. Now, I'm not saying that Ben Simmons can't improve because I'm sure he can't. And I'm sure that if he puts his mindset to it and he takes the time in the offseason and it puts in the work during the season as well that he can take significant strides to become a formidable shooter from from range another example that i have is is russell westbrook who kind of plays that same style Mm. and is also
0: a very polarizing player in his own right.
1: very polarizing player in his own right but russell westbrook is significantly smaller so he kind of has to play with that high high energy but russell westbrook still takes open threes He still takes open jump shots. Like,
0: he's not a great jump shooter by any means, but at least he tries and hits them at an okay clip.
1: And it forces the defender to at least somewhat respect his jump shot. At this point, Ben Simmons, you could be standing at the three-point
0: line, and there's absolutely no reason to guard him out there. (laughs) You know, if I... If I magically was teleported into the brain of an NBA head coach during a game against the 76ers, I wouldn't know what I'd be doing out there. But the one thing that I would know to do is to tell my players, if you close out on Ben Simmons, I will bench you.
1: (laughs) That's essentially all you need to do is make sure that Ben Simmons doesn't get to the rim. Which, he's incredibly talented and incredibly gifted. Yeah, for sure. Because all of these coaches know this, <laughs> but yet he's still able to get to the rim and, and still cool. and yes, still, able, sure. still able to put up 14 points a game, which is very good in the NBA, especially as a point guard who also gets a lot of assists. But Ben Simmons, you got to learn how to shoot, man.
0: <laughs> you know what? I think he got it, and I'm fairly sure that many, many people in his life have told him that. But you know what? We can't comment too much on his, his personal life, and obviously only time will tell what kind of an athlete he develops into and ends up being in, in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And, and now, folks, before we, in order to transition out of basketball, we unfortunately have to say goodbye to an NBA Hall of Famer, and that's Elgin Baylor, who passed away on the 22nd of March at the age of 86.
1: Yeah, Elgin Baylor, he is oftentimes overlooked because he was on... Some of those really, really good uh, Laker teams. Uh, he was on uh, the Jazz as a coach, and he is sometimes overlooked. And he was a definitely an, an exceptional player, and he was an 11-time NBA All-Star. Uh, he was an NBA All-Star MVP. This man definitely has a ton of credentials to his name, and he is a basketball icon. And he definitely will be missed.
0: And I like what you said about him being rather overlooked because that was certainly the case for me. Now, granted... Folks, full disclosure, I've only been a basketball fan for three years, so I am playing catch-up mm-hmm. big time on a lot of things, both as a fan and as a sports journalist. And I, and I will admit that readily, but mm-hmm. Elgin Baylor is a name that I, I didn't even come close to hearing. Right? It's not even – like obviously he's not a LeBron James. He wasn't a Michael Jordan. He didn't have that kind of notoriety. He didn't even have notoriety like a Jeremy Lin, right, right? who was this sensation. But you know what? I didn't I didn't know who Elgin Baylor was until last year when I read a book – for one of my classes in the IUPUI Sports Capital Journalism Program called Basketball A Love Story. Now, I do have to say, if you care about basketball at all, at all you need to read this book. It is, an, it is an oral history of the sport of basketball compiled from hundreds of interviews compiled by the likes of Dan Clores, Jackie McMullen, and Rafe Bartholomew. And it is a highly intriguing like read based on... Primarily, even on on anecdotes, on on the players' words and on coaches' words, on you know com- on commissioners, and this was where I learned who Elgin Baylor was, and I learned that despite the fact that I had never heard of him, he was an like you said a multiple-time All-Star, exceptional player, a, a, a fixture on a lot of those Lakers teams, and you know the basketball world will miss him for sure. Yeah, he definitely
1: will. You know, he, like he was overlooked a little bit because. You know he played with jerry west and if you know jerry west he's the uh, nba logo and uh, he is the guy
0: he is the silhouette on the logo that billions of people just take for granted
1: right and he played in the in the same time frame and in the same era as wilt chamberlain and i believe bill russell a little bit as well so kind of like those guys are oftentimes looked as nba legends But we don't think of Elgin Baylor in that same category, and it's sad because I think we should, and he was definitely a great basketball player and and a great man,
0: and he'll be missed. Absolutely. Now, folks, let's transition to an update on the NFL team that Tyson and I both agree on, the Green Bay Packers, and one of the... Things that happened with them in recent history is that uh, they lost the NFC Championship to Brady, who won his seventh, and we're a tad salty about that, but I'm over it. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, with that aside, back on the 14th of March, Aaron Jones has signed a four-year, $48 million extension to stay in Green Bay after they declined to franchise tag him. And so I know that you thought that Jones was on his way out, but, you know, it turns out they were expecting bigger offers in free agency. His agent went and said that, but apparently those didn't come, and looks like Aaron Jones decided that he would rather stay in Green Bay then. So, anyways, like I said, four years, $48 million, with $13 million of those dollars guaranteed, and a $13 million signing bonus on top of that. Not exactly what Dak Prescott is getting paid, but to be perfectly honest, it's kind of nice to take a break from these massive, gaudy contracts like that. I mean, he's a running back, he's getting paid very, very handsomely. Now... Aaron Jones obviously is an established playmaker. He has rushed for over a 1,000 yards and added over 350 yards through the air in each of the last two seasons, accounting for 35 total touchdowns in his previous 34 games. Now, that is none too shabby, and he also improved as a pass blocker Mm -hmm. on third downs last year en route to his first Pro Bowl. Now... Some fans might still be nonplussed with Jones's performance in said NFC Championship earlier this year. Yeah. Six rushes, 27 yards. Four catches for seven yards and two fumbles, one lost. lost—is not a good look in a game that big, but yeah, obviously everyone falters every now and then. Everyone's human, and barring the unexpected, Jones should remain at least a top ten running back with skills in every department of his position.
1: Yeah, I, I believe so. You know, uh... Again, it's tough to go back and remember those two fumbles, particularly the one that he lost in that NFC Championship game. But, you know, you laid out all the stats for Aaron Jones. His production has been incredible, especially for, you know, that offense. He seems to fit very well in that backfield with Aaron Rodgers. And, you know, in the NFL, the way it is right now, you need a running back that at least has some skills coming out of the backfield and receiving the ball. And Aaron Jones has shown that he is more than formidable in doing that. So, you know, he can catch the ball. He's a red zone
0: threat. He can break off big runs. He's definitely got a lot of talent. And, and he's got surprising power for a five foot nine running back. He is not the biggest guy, but he's very compact with excellent balance. And mm-hmm. we have both seen him break some tackles and grind out extra yards, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, his ability, like his low center of gravity definitely helps break tackles. And you know Aaron Jones is a, a very good back, and he was going to get paid. Uh, I'm, like you said, he definitely didn't expect the offers to be kind of as low as maybe they were expecting to be. Low is a relative term. Low obviously. is, low is a, definitely a relative term. But Aaron Jones, he could have taken more money to go elsewhere, but he took a little bit of a pay cut because let's let's face it, this works really well. Let's not ruin it for Aaron. Let's not ruin it for the
0: Packers. For sure. Now, obviously, that does leave an odd man out of the backfield in relation to last year, and that man ended up being Jamal Williams, who was drafted in 2017, the same year as Jones. Ironically, Jamal was drafted in round four, Aaron was drafted in round five, but you know, it's funny how sports work sometimes. Jamal Williams became Aaron Jones' backup in Green Bay, but he was still a very solid number two running back, contributing at least 460 yards on the ground and 210 yards receiving in each of his four seasons. That's very good if you're a committee guy. He's got great energy. If you've watched practice games, you've probably seen him dancing on the sideline. Everyone who knows him says he's a great figure to have around in the locker room. Tough runner, powerful runner, like I said, receiving aptitude, But he has, interestingly enough, signed with the NFC North rival Detroit Lions in free agency.
1: Yeah. Pat McAfee had Aaron Rodgers on his show uh, during the season. And Aaron Rodgers frequently said Jamal Williams is a big part of our offense this year. He's going to be a focal point, and he's going to really help us uh, open some things up for us in the passing game. And it may not look like it by his stats and by his yards but because of how our offense is going to be used with kind of multiple running backs, Jamal Williams was going to be a big part of that. And I think we saw that. And, you know, Jamal Williams, granted, he's not as talented as Aaron Jones, but he's definitely got a lot of talent. He's got a lot of skill. He's a power back who can come out of the backfield and catch it too. And he is kind of that Swiss army knife guy that we had in our backfield for a long time. And When Aaron Jones was missing time
0: with injury, Jamal Williams stepped in very well. For sure. But now that Jamal Williams has gone, the number two spot in the Packers' backfield goes, of course. We're swapping a Swiss Army knife for a battering ram. A.J. Dillon, the second-year man, out of Boston College. And frankly, folks, I'm going to go ahead and out myself as a measurables addict. And you love it. I love it. And here's why I love it. Six feet tall, 247 pounds. Translation for the non-football fans out there: That's big. That's solid. That's thick with like three C's, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And listen, man, that's that's the truth. I mean, AJ Dillon is is a mac truck, uh, but he's a fast truck too. He ran his 40-yard dash in 4.53 seconds, which, again, the reference point is that is where we start to get sort of the your slower wide receivers, your slower cornerbacks, your slower safeties. Players that are 40, 50 pounds lighter than Dylan can run in that range. He's also got a 41-inch vertical, which, again, like anything near 40 inches is a very, very solid vertical. And this guy has got power in his lower body for days. Very, very accomplished at uh, at Boston College. And, again, you know, I've just thrown a bunch of numbers at y'all. And like we just said before, someone like me, like the frank truth is I'm 5'3". I've never been athletic, and that is the reason why... The measurables catch my eye in particular. I go, wow, someone who's that big, that strong, that fast, that explosive. I wish I was like remotely like that, but I'm not. Rip. Um, <laughs> and, and obviously, even if you're not exactly like me, you would expect a guy like that to be a very successful professional athlete due to his physical traits. Having said that, AJ Dillon was drafted in the second round. 60 second overall last year and Tyson you're not the biggest fan of that
1: yeah so AJ Dillon he kind of broke the internet in training camp when he got to the Packers because they were all running around in shorts because it wasn't quite time for the pads and the pants and stuff like that and this guy had some massive quads oh for sure and massive legs and you could just go and look and go man that's that's thick (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah for sure but Again, like you said, I wasn't a big fan of the draft that, you know, A.J. Dillon was in, partially because of the guy we took in the first round. And you he,
0: know what? No, 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 no. S- say, say, save that, save that for later, man. We gotta, we gotta not spoil it too I early. know,
1: but you know, spoil and, it. So course, here's course, here's course. my problem, okay? Is is you had Aaron Jones, you had Jamal Williams, and then you went and you drafted A.J. Dillon, okay? Why did you do that? Why are you drafting a player that you don't necessarily need and is going to be pushed down on your depth chart? Sure. You knew and understood that Jamal Williams was going to be a big part of this offense. You understood and knew that Aaron Jones was going to be the feature back because he was last year and he had an exceptional year and he probably should have made the Pro Bowl two years in a row based off of his numbers, but unfortunately he just didn't get the voting two years ago. So why would you spend a second round draft pick on a running back who's going to be your third guy? It doesn't make sense to me. I think that there were other places, other needs that the team could have addressed in the draft in the second round, and I think that there were some players that were available that would have made a lot more
0: sense. And you know what, I think that is a fair argument in a lot of ways because, well, a few reasons. First of all, you look at backs of Jones's caliber and Williams's caliber and we already told you they were drafted in the 4th and 5th rounds. Much later. And, and and you know there was reason to believe that Dylan may still have been available in in those later rounds where in the draft capital you're expending to get him is was less valuable. And that's certainly a fair point.
1: Right? Like round 3 could you have gotten AJ Dillon? Maybe. Maybe not, but maybe, but If A.J. Dillon goes in the third round and you're not able to get him, then the next best running back you could also probably get in the fifth round. You know, there are other... The running back position in college is so deep, and there are so many good running backs that are coming out of these university and college programs year after year after year that you can find one in the late rounds that are undrafted. Like Jacksonville, they had James Robinson, ran for over 1,000 yards, he was undrafted. Right. Right? So you can find guys in the later rounds and after not being drafted. Phillip Lindsay had a 1,000-yard season a couple of years ago for the Broncos yes, as well. Yes, for sure. And, you know, so these guys pop out every year who are undrafted or late picks, and they have great seasons, and they can become a feature back in the offense, that it doesn't make sense to go out and get a running back in round two when there are maybe possibly better options later on that you just don't quite understand and quite see because they're from a smaller school.
0: And the other argument is that the NFL is a passing league now more than ever where the emphasis has gone towards multiple receiver sets, move tight ends, stretching the field. And because of that, the run game, although obviously very, very useful, it's something that is more of a complementary role, which... As you said, your third-string running back is not going to be a horribly impactful player, and Dylan's 242 yards last year is about as much as something you would expect for that position. But in his defense, he 124 of those yards came in one game, which is not great for some reasons. But 124 yards, two touchdowns in Week 16 against the Tennessee Titans last December. We both watched this game, Dylan. That was a game, you know, I think that defined his rookie season. He was breaking tackles, powering through contact, converting your third and ones, fourth and ones with regularity that game, you know, in the snowy tundra that night. he, he He's flashed his potential. And one of the things that really did impress me about his college record is that he is not just a... Pound it between the tackles guy. Like, he does have the ability to run to the outside. He's got a very good burst for someone his size. And he's got great size to pass block, although he needs to work on his footwork. But, you know, either way, he is the number two back now, or at least he darn well should be. Hmm. And... You know, I, I love a good run game. I love a freakish athlete like that guy. And I am definitely a bit more optimistic about what he can do than maybe you. I think that with an increased workload, he could be a great compliment to Jones, kind of have that stereotypical thunder and lightning backfield, or at least that's what Packers fans hope for. But I will concede the point that per, perhaps his measurables, right, mm-hmm. were the reason he was drafted so highly. And if he was a little slower, they didn't jump quite as high, but he was a little bit smaller he would have, could have easily gone in the fourth, fifth, or sixth, or even seventh rounds. Now, having said that, he was not the most controversial pick Green Bay made last year, mm-hmm. which we alluded to before, mm-hmm. which brings us to some real madness. Tyson, take it away. I'm, I'm
1: getting a headache just thinking about it. <laughs> Jordan Love was a quarterback out of Utah State who was drafted by the Green Bay Packers in the first round last 26th year. 26th overall. 26th overall. And the Green Bay Packers not only drafted him in the first round, they traded up to get him from 30th to 26th, if memory serves. So a little bit of a, uh, they had to pay a little bit extra in draft compensation to go up and get him. So it's not like Jordan Love kind of fell to them in their their pick, and they were like, oh, he's the best guy available. Uh, we're gonna you know we're gonna take him now because he's just the best guy on our board. That wasn't the case. There was a purpose behind this of we're going to trade an additional asset, or two assets, I can't quite remember what the trade was, to trade up spots to get Jordan Love. And I'll give you credit, Jordan Love had a really good sophomore year, but Jordan Love was playing for Utah State in the Mountain West Conference,
0: which... A premier football conference in the United States. Just kidding. Somebody. No, it's
1: it's more like a pillow fight conference.
0: Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, the, there aren't any top 25 ranked teams in that conference. There aren't too many players that come out of the, the Midwest conference that are, you know, drafted at all. There definitely aren't any national championship favorites coming out of that conference. It's really, du- it's really tough to see that conference is kind of a pipeline for NFL talent. And I guess, you know, there's a chance that, you know, players come from where they can and, you know, I don't know, Jordan, you know, he chose Utah State. I'm not sure if he had any other options or not. But for whatever reason, he went to Utah State and he played. And and I'll give him credit. He played well in his sophomore year. But, you know, with Aaron Rodgers, who is a premier quarterback, he's going to go into the Hall of Fame he's won Super Bowl for you, why would you take a quarterback when you still have four years on your contract with Aaron Rodgers?
0: Now, (laughs) I'm going to be the moderate in the room because, to be honest, I didn't hate the pick as much as a lot of Packers fans did, and Well, first of all, the reason why we're bringing this up is that Tim Boyle, Rodgers' backup for the last three years, has joined Jamal Williams in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting coincidence there. He signed in the last few days after Green Bay decided not to extend him. Love is entrenched as the number two quarterback in the tundra, and that's why we're revisiting this this topic. But but here's the thing, Tyson. I think that before this season, nobody would have expected Aaron Rodgers to throw 48 touchdowns at the age that he is, 36, 37. He doesn't have a great many years left. And this is what I've been saying, honestly, to you since last year. Aaron Rodgers is not young anymore. And he has taken a ton of punishment over the course of his career, multiple major surgeries, the most recent of which was a broken collarbone. Like... Frankly, I would have been happy with 30 touchdowns out of Rodgers and, and a step back. The Well, 30 touchdowns for, from him last year and a step back this year. Now, obviously, he showed us that under Matt LaFleur's scheme, he does have more than, frankly, than I anticipated. His thirds for MVP, he accounted for 51 total touchdowns as, you know, an absolute juggernaut on offense. Okay, but... The thing is, is that no matter how you slice it, Aaron Rodgers doesn't have much left. I mean, optimistically, two years left of anywhere near this level, and I think that's that's about all you can ask for him. And if he uh, ask from him, if he gets you more than that, I think that's that's great, but it's not necessarily going to happen. And so I am someone who believes in preparing for the future. And let's be real, the worst time to draft a quarterback is when you absolutely need one. That's why there are such bidding wars and drafting blunders about over quarterbacks right year after year after year there's you know no more than about 12 15 good to great quarterbacks in the league at any one time so you know i don't don't hate the pick but i certainly understand why there's cause for concern in packer land
1: yeah like there was a lot of here's my rebuttal is that aaron Rodgers and the green bay packers under first year head coach matt lafleur won 13 games Now, Aaron Rodgers was very efficient, didn't throw many picks, but he also didn't throw very many touchdowns because... Not by his standards. Not by his standards, you know, and and that's something that we weren't necessarily used to or accustomed to. But uh, second year in a head coach system is usually when good coaches and good systems make considerable strides. I think that's why a lot of people are expecting the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady in year two to be a lot better than last year because it took them five, six, seven games for them to kind of hit their stride. And then, obviously, the rest is history. They were
0: utterly terrifying
1: when they hit their stride. Exactly. So what happened with Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur is that it took them a season to kind of figure it out, but they still won 13 games figuring it out. And then next year, they win 13 games again, and Aaron Rodgers has this MVP season. It's not like this necessarily came out of nowhere. I didn't think that anybody would have expected Aaron Rodgers to win the MVP this year. I think that was a lofty expectation that nobody had. And I think that if you're saying, oh, yeah, I predicted Aaron Rodgers to win the MVP. Sure you did. Sure you did, right? But I don't think that, like, for me, I was expecting Aaron Rodgers to make improvements from that year, first year with Matt LaFleur. And, you know, you said that... We don't know how many more years that Rodgers has and
0: especially with that injury history. And it's,
1: and it's good and I'll give you that that he has more injuries than Tom Brady does. But I don't see why Aaron Rodgers can't play at a very high level to the point where you can win Super Bowls until he's forty. I don't see why he couldn't do that. Now, granted, that's all about health and that if he if he gets hurt, then we're gonna start having a lot of problems. And that's when you might need a Jordan Love. But right now, I don't think that there's necessarily a need to draft Jordan Love, at least there wasn't last year. And like I said, there were definitely other needs that could have been filled with that draft pick.
0: For sure. And now before we talk about those other needs, on which we are fairly in agreement, I just want to set the stage for our listeners for what Jordan Love might bring to the table, because let's... Let's not just talk in theoreticals here. Let's talk about what the man did. You alluded to his sophomore year at Utah State. He threw 32 touchdowns against six interceptions in 2018. You know what? Might not have been the toughest conference, but those are good numbers. Mm -hmm. His junior year was when things started to fall apart, obviously. He threw 20 touchdowns and a full 17 interceptions, including six games with multiple picks. That's bad. It certainly is. That's (laughs) bad. And, you know, I, I took a look... A bit of a look at his college tape and mm-hmm. his scouting report and what it does show is plenty of arm strength athleticism to move the chains and you know what even accuracy there were a time in his college career where Jordan Love ripped fieldside throws very deep and was able to hit his receiver give his receiver a chance to catch a ball that was hard for the DB to make a play on but of course his tape also shows some very erratic play and deficiencies in decision making in particular I noticed and some journal some other journalists did as well is that he tended to either miss or underestimate underneath defenders and in that junior year many of his picks were thrown to a linebacker sitting in the short middle of the field which is not that's not a disguised coverage and it's cause for concern for sure
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah that's concerning you know and and i'll give you i'll give him credit for this they had to switch coaches because and an insane amount
0: of turnover along that offense in his junior year as oh, well. Oh, wh- was there? Oh, there was. He was essentially playing with almost an entirely new slate of wide receivers Ooh. that were sorely, sorely lacking in talent compared to the group he had in 2018. And frankly, when I looked at the tape. There were multiple plays where his receivers were dropping 50-yard bombs, would-be touchdowns. Mm -hmm. And they certainly failed to create separation and make plays in a way that he was used to in 2018. So when you combine that with the new head coach, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, because I noticed like after that really good year that Jordan had in his sophomore year, the head coach left for a job in Texas Tech. Now, Texas Tech good program, they're a Power 5 school in the Big 12. They that's kind of a good job. And I understand why a coach would want to leave, you know, Jordan Love and and Utah State and go live in Texas where there's no state tax and you get to coach And a, a lot of guns. Yeah. <laughs> and you also get to coach a team in, you know, a Power 5 conference. And sure. and that's definitely enticing and and you know, it's a it's an upward move in a career. Patrick
0: Mahomes is school, I believe. Exactly,
1: right. So you can definitely get some quality talent there at Texas Tech, but when we look at the the next year with all of this turnover and uh, a new coach and a, probably a new staff as well and pieces moving in and out and that is very hard for any quarterback. And I think it
0: showed in the tape. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways. We're going to have to see what Jordan Love can do now that he is the number two quarterback. You know, Lord forbid if Aaron Rodgers gets hurt, we might have to find out the hard way what he has in the tank. But, you know, it's something that, frankly, is up to chance. And I think that it's one of those draft picks that will be remembered in history as either brilliant or terrible. There's probably no middle ground. Uh, Probably. We'll see. Now to sort of wrap up this section, we did allude to the Packers' positions of need. And in my opinion, that would be interior defensive line and inside linebacker. And I'm sure you would agree with that.
1: Yeah, I would. You know, the stopping the run was definitely a a big cause for concern during stretches of the season this year.
0: And especially last year.
1: Yeah. Like, there was one game that was super windy at Lambeau Field, and the running back for the Minnesota Vikings, Dalvin Cook, very good running
0: back. Oh, he ran all over us. Four touchdowns, 200 yards. That's the game. I'm pretty sure Rodgers went three touchdowns, no picks, and we lost because of Dalvin Cook.
1: Right? Like, and, you know, but we couldn't throw a ball very much because it was super windy. And, you know, Aaron Jones had a good game that game. But we couldn't stop the run, and we couldn't stop Dalvin Cook, so we had to... Figure out new ways, and we just couldn't stop them, so we lost the game. And for a Green Bay Packers team that had 13 wins and three losses, you lost to a non playoff team in your division because you couldn't stop the run.
0: Right, and obviously that starts with the interior defensive line because Kenny Clark is our only good slash great interior lineman, and that's, well, that's not enough in any scheme, but. You know, in our three-four base defense. So if you if you don't understand what I'm talking about, there are two general ways of uh, ways you can set your defense: three defensive linemen and four linebackers behind them, or you can do a four-three, which is a very traditional four defensive linemen, three linebackers in behind them. Now, granted, more and more teams are transitioning to. A lot of sub packages essentially means subbing out linebackers for defensive backs. The nickel package, so named because there are five defensive backs on the field, is extremely common and the Packers are no exception. Nonetheless, though, in a 3 4 style defense, even if you go sub package for that, those interior linemen, whether there's three of them or two of them, they need to hold their ground. Because much of your playmaking talent is in your linebacking core, and they need to be freed up for one-on-one pass rush matchups, or in the case of the inside guys, free-flowing to stop the run. Dean Lowry can't really do that. He's he's underwhelmed in his few seasons here. Kingsley Kiki had four sacks last season, so perhaps some potential, but he's not really a sure thing. And so that is definitely a problem, because if those defensive linemen up front get overwhelmed, or if our opponents are able to double Kenny Clark all the time, which happened, or if Kenny Clark gets hurt, which he did, Mm -hmm. then we're in trouble. And frankly, as memory serves, we haven't had a truly good inside linebacker since A.J. Hawks' prime in the early 2010s, which is the other issue of need. Chris Barnes and Kamal Martin showed flashes last year, but are nonetheless young and injury prone. Yeah, they're young, and they're injury prone. And and it's tough because there
1: were a few years that they had to play Clay Matthews at – inside linebacker because yeah they were so desperate i remember those days one of our
0: best pass rushers we had to play him inside right
1: and you can do that sometimes but you know clay Matthews said it best when he was talking to a reporter and he said i like hitting quarterbacks not fullbacks
0: yeah <laughs> and you know what that's that's the kind of player as a three four outside linebacker who has been a pass rusher his whole career mm-hmm. and like you said that lack of depth at linebacker has created essentially personnel mismatches for the Packers and now why don't we take a look back at the 2020 draft and see what we could have done to address these areas of need if we don't pick Jordan Love. Mm -hmm. Now when I looked at the first round I saw two premier defensive tackles, Derek Brown and Javon Kinlaw both went into the top 15 in the top 15 Mm -hmm. well before the Packers had a shot at them so scrub that um, it wasn't going to happen but When Green Bay traded up from 30th to 26th, they could have drafted a young inside linebacker such as Jordan Brooks, who went to Seattle, and Patrick Queen, who went to Minnesota. And both those guys ended up going after Jordan Love, 27 and 28, if memory serves. Patrick Queen in particular played for the national champion LSU Bayou Bengals, because I think that's a better name than Tigers, right? But LSU is, you know, they've kind of been known for producing good linebackers in recent years. You've got Quan Alexander, you've got Deion Jones in Atlanta, and of course Super Bowl champion Devin White, who I kind of see in my nightmares every once in a while, (laughs) because that guy is a missile. You know, you can't help but think, Patrick Queen, you know, maybe a guy like that could have been a more impactful first-round pick.
1: Yeah, Patrick Queen, he looked a little bit out of his depth sometimes and playing in, in that that middle linebacker position, but overall he was very good in some situations and he was, you know, definitely a position of need for us that we would have been definitely uh, good to have that. And unfortunately, um, you know, we went a different route and and Patrick Queen was taking two picks after we took Jordan Love and and you know Patrick Queen I think that he was going to be a good pick and he played really well at LSU and you know we're only one year removed from the draft let's not try and forget that no that you know there's still a lot of life to be determined for these these players but you know Patrick Queen he looks really good and and you know there were some other players that were taken in in the in the you know defensive end type stuff like AJ Espinenza went to the Bills and he came in and and was kind of that really good uh, defensive end in that 3-4 system for the Bills. And, and you know, that that's another pick that probably could have helped us on the defensive side of the ball. For sure.
0: Anyways, before we move on to our next segment, I do want to, maybe I'm a little bit petty, but I do want to put something to bed. All of those other Packer fans screaming for us to draft at least one or two wide receivers to help Rodgers and play behind Devontae Adams, because apparently going shotgun five wide is the only way to play football in the <laughs> NFL. Just kidding. It's not. And we have already talked about how Aaron Rodgers clearly more than made it work with the weapons he did have available last year. Packers were the high-scoring high offense in the league, 31.8 points per game, and as well, Matt LaFleur's use of play action and quick passes and a balance of run game was a part of that because you know here's a fun advanced stat for you you know next gen stats are all the rage these days rogers's average time to throw last year was 2.72 seconds down from 2.88 in 2019 and 2.95 in 2018 now again to the layman that may not sound like a huge difference but in football it is a difference between getting a throw off just in time and getting sacked or getting your arm batted down, essentially. And so we can see that a more balanced offense and a more balanced use of the available weapons was certainly the key. So, uh, you know what? Stop, stop screaming wide receiver. That was, I, I get questioning Jordan Love, but that was not really the big problem.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people look at the Packers draft and they go, oh, the Packers haven't taken a skill player in the draft in a long time, which is true. But they've also had exceptional drafts and, and developing players in late-round talents. Like Aaron Jones went in the fifth round. Devontae Adams was a second-round pick. Mm-hmm. They've been able to develop skill players from later on in the draft. And those skill players have now helped the Packers. And you haven't had to need to draft one of those guys in the first round. I think what everybody is concerned about is what if Devontae Adams goes down? Because he missed some time last sure. year. And, you know... When Devontae Adams is healthy, it would be good to have that option too to take some pressure off of Devontae and maybe roll some coverage
0: his way instead of Devontae's way every single time. Wait a second, you mean to tell me that Marquez Valdez-Scantling is not a credible threat? Marquez Valdez
1: Scantling is either going to get you 77 yards and a touchdown. Or nothing. Or he's going to drop the 77 yards. (laughs) And he's not going to get the touchdown. It's kind of one or the other with Marquez. And Alan Lazard, big bodied receiver, but sometimes can be uh, missing from games. And I don't mean missing in the fact that he's not there, but it doesn't appear like he's not making an impact on the game, so to speak. So I think a lot of people like the idea of getting a, a new. A face in that wide receiver core to kind of just add to that because, you know, the offense is so good, why not make it better? But Mm -hmm. like you said, it's definitely not the most needed position for the Packers right now. But I think that maybe adding a veteran player to help kind of give a more reliable second option wouldn't be a bad way to go later
0: on in the free agency after the draft. No, uh, but to conclude... I certainly will be looking for the Packers to draft interior D-line and inside linebacker this year as long as available, uh, rather appropriate talent is available. Now for our final segment of the podcast, we're going to move on to a team that no matter how much the NFC champ game lost, uh, or sorry, uh, no matter how much the NFC champ game feels, how badly that feels to us Packers fans, we're still glad we're not Buffalo Sabres fans. And Tyson, why is that the case?
1: Oh, man, the Buffalo Sabres are so dysfunctional, and it's just its just terrible. Like, this team was supposed to be good, and that's why they went and they got Taylor Hall in the off-season, and they gave him a one-year $8 million contract, and they expected Taylor Hall to play with Jack Eichel or play on that second line with Sam Reinhart, and Jeff Skinner would be playing on that
0: first line a lot of name power there by the way like right? if you look a few years back every single one of those guys is top 6 or better
1: right and you know jeff skinner former 30 goal scorer taylor hall former league mvp jack, or jack eichel
0: went right behind Conor McDavid. And certainly deserving from a talent standpoint. And certainly deserving from a talent standpoint. Kyle Ocposo used to be a very solid 20-30 goal, 50-60 point power forward with a lot of size. Yes. Good player too. Yeah. All these guys,
1: good players. Jack Eichel's probably going to be the number one center on the Olympic USA hockey team or at least the number two center behind Austin Matthews. And that's probably what Team USA is going to be looking like. So these are... High quality players And highly skilled players But Kyle Opozo Jack Eichel Jeff Skinner And Taylor Hall This season have combined For a total Of five goals Five. five.
0: Oh, that's That's, that's kind of like A Ben Simmons Three point shooting Yeah cycle. Wow <laughs> And
1: the Buffalo Sabres Have played 30 games Ugh. And they cost 33 million
0: dollars On the cap That's almost half Which, by the way, again, in the NHL, much less money involved. It's much, much smaller salary caps than something like the NFL, in case you didn't know. But nonetheless, that's a big chunk.
1: And it was at this point, because they had a couple of injuries and such, like Jack Eichel, he's been out with some injuries, that they had a first line. This was their first line, David. Taylor Hall, Riley Shan, and Tage Thompson.
0: uh, That's kind of interesting in a less than ideal kind of way, (laughs) because... From what I remember, Riley Shahan's kind of one of those middle six, bottom nine, four, two-way forwards. And Tage Thompson, well, let's just say he's not an offensive star. Uh, let me put
1: it to you this way. Riley Shahan once played a full season without scoring a goal. Perfect. For And he is your center, first-line center. Great. That is not ideal. So Jack Eichel and Skinner and Hall and Opozo, they haven't been good enough. And Taylor Hall is definitely a part of that. The Buffalo Sabres, they're last in the NHL, and it's not close. It's not close. They're last in the NHL, and
0: the Ducks are second last, and the Ducks are 8 points ahead. Sabres are 6, 20, and 4. Not even double-digit wins in 30 games. That is is a bit less than less than ideal. They have lost 14 games in a row. Great. That's really
1: bad. Sure is. Their goal differential is negative 42, which is tied for last in the NHL. With the Ottawa Senators. Mm. The Buffalo Sabres have won two games at
0: home. Mm. Two games at home. This is really bad. Well, like, then it begs the question, right, how did we get here?
1: Yeah, how did things get this bad? And, and it starts with ownership. And from what I understand in the Buffalo Sabres executive suite, leadership in there is kind of like a chartreuse platypus it doesn't exist <laughs> it doesn't exist okay leadership is apparently not to be found the owner and CEO of the Buffalo Sabres is Terry Pagula. made his money in natural gas bought the Buffalo Sabres and eventually the Buffalo Bills bought the Sabres in 2011 it was Terry Pagula's decision to fire 22
0: staff in June Right when they had this name-heavy roster? Yes. Interesting. They fire- not in a good way, though. No, they fired 22 staff because
1: they didn't make the playoffs. This is clearly not the time or place to fire all of your staff, right? When you choose to fire 22 of your staff, you're signaling to the to the organization, it's time to start over. Sure. Not that you're on the cusp of winning and making the playoffs, right? So then Terry Bagula decided... Okay, we're going to hire Ralph Krueger. Now, Ralph Krueger, he has some experience in the NHL. He was a very successful uh, hockey coach over in Europe, came over and was an assistant for the Oilers, eventually took over for the Oilers in 2012-2013, that lockout-shortened season. He was the head coach of the Oilers for one season. Uh, they came 12th in the West, and they missed the playoffs. So mm-hmm. he was promptly fired after that year. After, afterwards, uh, Ralph Kruger went on to become the director of
0: Southampton. Hmm. Uh, South- a soccer club, or, in case of uh, European lingo, football club.
1: Yes, he was the director of Southampton, uh, the in the English Premier League, and after his contract expired in the at Southampton, he was hired to be the head coach of the Buffalo Sabers, and was promptly fired after twelve games of losing.
0: Fantastic.
1: So they haven't lo- They haven't won a game since, uh, since Kruger was fired. So. This is clearly an organization that has a lot of dysfunction from the management perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, the other owner uh, and president of the organization is Kim Pugula, uh, Terry's wife. Okay. Sure. So so Kim Pugula, she went to school at Houghton College in New York for sports journalism, uh, met Terry at a restaurant, kind of started a job, and then a year later they started dating and married. Uh, mostly involved kind of in the marketing aspect of the Buffalo Sabres, Mm -hmm. because that makes sense, because she went for sports journalism and stuff like that. But there are some really bad blunders in terms of marketing and fan interaction with the Buffalo Sabres in this organization. So for the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo Sabres history, uh, they had two of their legends, Mike Robotai and Dave Anderchuk, Uh, they misspelled their last names on their jersey. Did they now? They did. Yikes. They're two legends hanging from the rafters, and they could not spell their names on their jersey right.
0: That, that's an oof. That's in, an in, oof. In, in, in the eloquent words of internet lingo, that is an oof. That is an oof. Okay, and then
1: the Buffalo Sabres, they also they had a 90s night. Now, in this 90s night, there was no representation from the black big Buffalo jerseys, which was worn for most of the 90s. There was no representation of that, which is kind of confusing. And, it is, and it's one of the most popular fan favorite jerseys of all time. And the Buffalo Sabres just refused to acknowledge that. I guess it made no sense. Anyways, later on, their alumni, some of the Buffalo Sabres alumni, was doing a charity event, but these these players were wearing knockoff jerseys. Knockoff jerseys. They were not wearing original jerseys players took photos with fans who had the actual jerseys, oh my goodness. and you could clearly see, like, there was like lines missing, there were certain patterns and colors that were off, there were things that were missing from the jersey. It was really bad. You had Buffalo Sabres alumni going out and wearing knock-off jerseys for a
0: charity event. <laughs> well, as embarrassing as all of that is, certainly there must also be a player development or player management angle as to why they're in this situation, you know, searching for their seventh head coach in nine seasons and sitting on a dumpster fire that's only grown bigger.
1: For sure. Uh, like the Buffalo Sabres are very thin at staff because Terry Bikula fired 22 staff and didn't hire anybody. So they have nine members of their hockey operations department, and that's including their heads of scouting. They have seven total scouts. Only seven. That's not very many. Mm. And then you have interim head coach Don Granado, who has zero coaching experience, or head coaching experience, sorry. Then you have assistant Mike Bales, video coach, and a video coordinator. And then they have four developmental coaches, and two of them whom are currently interim assistant coaches. Mm. And just I just want to give you a little bit of a reference here. The Toronto Maple Leafs, they have tons of money, and we all know this but not including the Maple Leafs Sports and Entertainment Board and CEO and ownership side of things. Hmm. The Toronto Maple Leafs have 24 executives in the hockey ops. They have 22 scouts. They have 16 developmental staff and coaches. And they have three more assistant coaches than the Buffalo Sabres do. Hmm. I think that when we look at the development side of the players, that there has been a lack
0: of staff that has directly contributed to the lack of development of this team. That's very, yeah, for sure. They're running. It sounds like they're running a skeleton crew down there, and the way they've drafted certainly hasn't helped either. And for that, I think we have to go back to the 2014 NHL entry draft, which we were talking about this before the broadcast. It's very, very odd in hindsight.
1: Yeah, when you look at it in hindsight, it's it's interesting. That was the draft that Aaron Eggblad went number one to the Florida Panthers, and then the Buffalo Sabres had picked number two and they drafted Sam Reinhardt over Leon Draisaitl, who was taken third by the Edmonton Oilers. Now Sam Reinhardt at the time was kind of considered to be this really good leader, really good hockey IQ player, mm-hmm. kind of this playmaking center who can really pass the puck with a, an elite ability and that's kind of what was advertised and that's why Sam Reinhardt was taken second overall. Mm-hmm. Now when we look at Sam Reinhardt's career to Leon Dreisidel's, it's not even comparable. Leon Dreisidel is you know, near the top of the league in scoring
0: every year. He and McDavid are the new Crosby Malkin, essentially.
1: Essentially. Meanwhile, Sam Reinhardt has not been able to produce as a second-line center, so he's been moved to the wing, where it's easier for him to contribute and less defensively responsible. But it's not only Sam Reinhart who's been... Drafted, but then not able to be developed to his fullest extent of his, um, you know, potential. Rasmus Dalin, who just taken a couple of years ago first overall, he's regressed. He's a minus 28 this year. Now, for those of you who don't know what plus minus stat is, a plus minus stat is whenever you're on the ice for a goal, that's plus one. Whenever you're on the goal or on the ice for a goal against, that's a minus one. So Rasmus Dallian has been on the ice for 28 more goals against than he has been for goals for. And now plus
0: minus is obviously a controversial stat by itself because there's a lot of complicated factors that go into whether or not you're on the ice for a goal versus whether or not you're on the ice when your team scores a goal. But I was watching watching, uh, the Calgary Flames game against Toronto last weekend and... I forget who, but I think I forget who. I think it might have been Kevin Bieksa on the panel making the point that sure, plus-minus might be a controversial stat, but when it's that heavily skewed to one side or the other, it is telling.
1: Yeah, and I think that's important to understand is that you know plus-minus isn't a super big stat, stat except when it's a lot. Right. <laughs> you know, but when we look at their other draft picks, like the the Buffalo Sabres have drafted top eight every year for eight years in a row. They've drafted, you know, Casey Middlestadt, who in 2018 was the World Juniors MVP, top forward, leading point scorer, bronze medalist for the Team USA, but Casey Middlestadt is barely able to make the fourth line for the Buffalo Sabres, and they won't even try and play him in the top six. Alex Nylander, like his brother William playing in Toronto, is highly skilled offensively, but Alex Nylander wasn't developed well, and he was traded to Chicago, so There's a severe problem in this organization with developing young talent. And the answer simply cannot just be, oh, we're just going to get better through the draft. Because it's proven that the Buffalo Sabres don't
0: take their draft picks and develop them into NHL players. Well, as true as that might be, at least you weren't the team that drafted Sam Bennett fourth overall. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, we're going to move on from that point because... (laughs) You know what, the, these oddities do happen, and sometimes players just pan, fail to pan out. And while we're on the topic of visiting the 2014 draft, 50-goal threat David Pasternak falling to 25 will never not be strange.
1: No, that that's a tough one. Boston a, lucked out! Oh man, that's a tough one for me as a Leafs fan to swallow, because if, if Pasternak was on any other team, I would love him, but because he's on the Boston Bruins and he scores against my Leafs so often,
0: I can't love him. Sure, fair enough. But in any case, I suppose we're going to have to see what happens to the Buffalo Sabres from this point out. They, this, we hope for their sake, is rock bottom. Yeah. But this is a puzzle that is going to require some serious effort to solve.
1: I think, I think the first step is for the owner, Terry Pagula to realize that since he's owned the team in 2011, the team has not been in good shape. They haven't made the playoffs. So I think it's time for Terry Pagula to step back and hire a president of hockey operations to kind of run the team, so to speak. And I think that would be the best place to start, is, is getting somebody who has a lot of experience to help facilitate this rebuild and help
0: out general manager Kevin Adams. Because the writing is absolutely on the wall that you've got to tear down the whole thing and start over because... What you are doing simply is not working, and mm-hmm. once again, we, frankly, we wish them the best of luck in doing that. But uh-huh. until then, unfortunately, it looks like Sabres fans are going to have to put up with some misery for for a while longer. But hopefully, there's some hope coming into the future. But anyways, that will do it for our episode here today. Once again, folks, we hope you enjoyed listening. We hope you are enjoying March Madness and all the other crazy things that are happening in sports these days. And we'll see you next time on the draft board.